Shelley. And I'm Nicole. And you're listening to the Baby Pro Podcast, where we talk about everything and anything related to pregnancy through the first year of your child's life. Every episode, we will discuss and interview experts on all the questions expectant and new parents want to know, such as creating the perfect birth plan, infant sleep, and tips and tricks for parenting a newborn. Welcome to the show. Hey, Nicole. Hey there, Shelly. How are you? I'm doing really well. How are you? I'm good. Good. We are recording this two days after Thanksgiving. Yes. It's not going to be released until February, though, but I did want to ask you. Yeah. Thanksgiving. Oh, it was so different this year. Nonetheless, it was really nice. We had a good time. It was just me and my kids and my significant other, and we had a great time. It was small compared to the normal. Usually you, you host like 50 people or something like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like anywhere from, I've had anywhere from like 17 to 30 people on any given Thanksgiving. So there were seven of us. So much smaller this year. Mm-hmm. I mean, we were being careful because of COVID. My extended family still wanted to get together, but with COVID numbers going up, I couldn't do it with a good clear conscience. So I said, Mm-mm. so we kept it small. The family divided and conquered. My sister had my parents who she sees routinely lives more in their area. Mm-hmm. I stayed here and had my kids. So they had 10 and I had um, seven. So I bet it was nice. Yeah. Maybe not for you. Cause you're not an introvert, but for me, like <laughs> a smaller holiday just feels so much nicer. In some ways, it really was so much nicer, though. Normally, I cook for days for that large of a crowd. And by the time everybody sits down, I'm so tired and so sick of it all that I don't eat with everybody. For years, I've sat with them, but I have not eaten until everybody goes home that night and I clean my entire kitchen, which is disgusting after all the food. And then... I'll like wash the floor even, and then I'll sit down and have my plate of Thanksgiving dinner, like eight o'clock at night. I didn't feel exhausted this year. I didn't feel totally wiped out. I sat with my family and ate and I wasn't done with it by the time everybody sat down. So I will say it had a really beautiful silver lining. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was nice. It was intimate. It was quiet. We goofed off. There was no pressure with this unbelievable amount of hosting. Right. It was kind of nice. It was a nice treat. Different, but really still special. Mm-hmm. That sounds nice. Yeah. Ever since we moved into our house, yeah, years, my family always does Christmas Eve, and yeah. it's usually this huge event. And since we moved into our house, I've been hosting it, and I'm really like we've been going back and forth. And at first, we're like we'll probably still have it, but now that the cases are going up, we're like I don't think we can have it right. for sure because it's just too many people. Yeah. So I'm a little sad about that, but also like, oh my gosh, also like we're going to save so much money. I know. (laughs) I know. We buy like, we go out, we get red meat and and all the alcohol too, because my family is big drinkers. Right. Right. (laughs) Wow. What are we going to do? Like extra gifts for the kids or something like that? Right. Right. Exactly. Yep. So I have found a lot of people said that even though things have changed, they still found it to be really special. Mm -hmm. So in saving money is definitely one of them. (laughs) Yeah. And my Thanksgiving was super quiet. My 
kids always spend Thanksgiving with their dad. So they were with their dad as usual. And usually we would go visit John's family for Thanksgiving. His sister usually hosts, but she moved to Texas. They all moved to Texas right earlier in the year so we were like what are we gonna do and personally i'm not a thanksgiving person like no one in my family doesn't really celebrate it we never really got together so i was kind of i said i greatly offended my husband because i said maybe we should just order out like <laughs> and the look on his face you would have thought that i suggested he kill the dog <laughs> he <was> so offended. <laughs> well it's just gonna be you know five of us, like his kids and me. And he's like, okay. And I hate cooking and I hate cleaning and I generally don't do it. But he was like, I will do everything. And all I want you to do, he's like, you have to promise me that you won't work. And all I want you to do is just sit and eat and knit. Nice. So that's what I did. Nice. I got this little Yoda hat. I saw that. So cute. I knitted up in like two hours. Nice. So So by the time this episode gets released, Valentine's Day will be coming up. And I'm going to be optimistic and say, you know, (sighs) it's not going to happen. But (laughs) (laughs) like I hope COVID has passed and people can go out for a nice dinner on Valentine's Day. Right. We'll see how that turns out. Yeah. Do you usually celebrate Valentine's Day? So my thing with Valentine's Day is not really, but when my kids were growing up, I love holidays. So even though Valentine's Day was kind of like a lesser and, you know, whatever, I loved doing special things for them. So I would make a special meal and I would make it like a restaurant. So I'd make like a really nice meal and then I would give people like three options for dessert. And I would do it up for them and I would get them chocolates and them cards and so forth, just because it was kind of a cute thing to do for them. I can't decide if you're awesome. Or- <laughs> <laughs> probably crazy. Um, probably crazy. You're awesomely crazy. How about- <laughs> <laughs> Wildly crazy. Mm-hmm. But not much. I mean, I don't know. I'm in a different situation right now. I'm not married, but I'm with somebody that I plan to spend the rest of my life with. Hopefully we'll marry which I'm sure I will. I shouldn't say hopefully. So I don't know. We might be doing something fun. I have no idea, but I don't know. I'm kind of a, when I think of Valentine's Day, I don't want to go out to dinner. I don't even like red roses. Let's just be honest. I think they're ugly. Mm-hmm. So I would much rather stay home and just like maybe watch a movie or something. It's not a big mm-hmm. deal to me. My perfect Valentine's date would be snuggling on the couch with a fire in the fireplace, watching a yeah. movie. Not a romantic movie because I don't right. like that, no, but- give me a comedy, give me something funny or drama. You know I mean? Yeah. Or drama. Yeah. That's kind of how I feel too. I don't really, mm-hmm. I guess Valentine's day doesn't necessarily mean a ton to me, but I wanted it for the kids, but yeah. So Valentine's now I don't want to go out. I worked so many years as a waitress and a bartender yep. and Valentine's day is one of the worst days ever for uh wait stuff. And bartender. Yeah, it's just really. if you spend enough time <laughs> serving people food and drinks on Valentine's Day, you tend to get very cynical and jaded. You know, when you, <laughs> like, 
the guy comes in with his wife in the early afternoon and then the evening he comes back in with his mistress and like the wife oh my gets jewelry. The mistress always gets lingerie and he oh, just, just what turns is. you into this like cynical jaded person that you're like F Valentine's Day. Yeah, no kidding. The last place that I want to be during Valentine's Day is at a restaurant. Yeah, I'm more like, I don't know, it just seems so staged to like dress up and go to a restaurant. It just feels like a stupid commercial or something. Like I would, if we want to do something for it, like I'll just like park it on the couch with nothing on. (laughs) You know, like let's watch a great movie, just blankets and I don't know, a glass of wine. It doesn't feel like it has to be a big thing. No. No. Yeah. (laughs) All right. That was kind of like a little tangent. We would have- <laughs> I just realized that too. I'm like, oh, I guess I might have. Yeah. There we go. Well, let's talk about our favorite of the week. Yeah. So my favorite of the week, since we're talking holidays, well, and we're talking about does I don't know, my favorite thing that I did when the kids were younger for Valentine's Day was I made different desserts that had to be kind of like chocolatey or with strawberries or cherries, something red. So I always would make a heart-shaped cheesecake mm-hmm. with a cherry topping. And I also did like brownie sundaes. I'm all about cheesecake though. So I love cheesecake. And I just had this conversation with Frank last night. His sister makes the best cheesecake I've ever had in my life. So this is the first Thanksgiving I did not make a cheesecake because I've been done now. Like I've always made it and it's always been good, but hers is so much better that I'm done for. I have no reason to make (laughs) cheesecake ever again. However, that is definitely my favorite Valentine's Day dessert to make Mm -hmm. because it's just decadent Mm -hmm. and it's pretty. I love it. I love cheesecake. I do too. And normally for Thanksgiving or Christmas, I do it with a ginger snack crust, like a cherry topping or a raspberry topping or whatever. But his sister makes one that's just, it blows every other cheesecake out of the water. And now I feel like I can never do it again. (laughs) You have been (laughs) eaten. Yeah. If she wants to make me them all the time, I am okay with that. I don't care. I don't have to make it. I just want to eat it. Blueberry cheesecake is my favorite. You know how much I love chocolate, Nicole. You know I'm yeah. a chocolate lover, but for some reason, it, when it's chocolate cheesecake, it's too much. Yeah. I think it's because ch- cheesecake is so like dense. It's it is right. But it's I feel like sick if I eat even just one piece of chocolate cheesecake. But if you just give me like regular cheesecake with some blueberries on top of it, I can handle one piece of that. I could handle like three. I don't know where you're getting the one from, but yeah. <laughs> Like it just feels so dense. It is dense. I used to always say to moms, it's like cheesecake. It's you don't need a lot to get everything they need. It's like a lost room in that way. That's perfect. <laughs> I have said that a thousand times to moms in the hospital. Totally stealing that from you. <laughs> yes, because they only need a little bit because a little goes a long way. It's like cheesecake. It's dense and it's super rich and it's everything you need in a bite. That's perfect. <laughs> Only lactation professionals come up with these, like, (laughs) (laughs) all right. Well, my favorite of the week is a show. Oh, tell me. The 100. Have you ever heard of it? No. So it's on Netflix. Oh, I think I've heard of it. Yeah. On cable. 
Okay. I think the show is still ongoing, but you can catch all the seasons on Netflix. Okay. And I started watching it like, I don't know, like five years ago. Yeah. I think they're on season like five right now. And it was kind of meant to be a young adult show, but it's so good. Really? I'm not going to give too many details away, but it takes place in the future after some kind of apocalyptic event. And you know how much I love apocalyptic movies <laughs> and books. Like if it involves the end of the world, I totally want to read it because I'm yeah. like that. But what's left of humanity is living in a space station around the Earth orbit because the earth is not habitable anymore. And because it's been like a hundred years since they started living up there, they're running out of room and they're running out of resources. And the space station is starting to fall apart. And because they have so little room and resources, if you commit a crime, they kill you. They don't oh God. know like if once it's been proven that you committed it, no matter how, if you steal a piece of bread, you're floated is what they call it. Except if you're under 18, then you stay in prison until you're 18 and then you're floated, right? Wow. So the space station's falling apart. They don't have room. And they take a hundred of these nocturne, these teenagers, these children and teens who are in prison but haven't been floated yet. And they're like, we're going to send you down to the earth and you're going to let us know if it's habitable yet. And they just force these 100 kids to go down to the earth. And it starts off like this huge adventure. Not a, like there's a lot of murder. There's a lot of like violence. So it's not like a little kid show, but right. I think it was geared towards like young teens and I just totally got swallowed up in it. It's just yeah. so good. Yeah. But it's really interesting and it is on Netflix and I think it's still showing on the cable show too. It's called The 100. I guess it was based off a book. I haven't checked out the book yet, Yeah. but it's really good. Cool. Yeah. I'll have to check it out. Yeah. And all your free time. I know. I know. I just fall asleep all the time. If I put the TV <laughs> out. I'm like, Nicole, you're old. <laughs> I am old. I'm like, holy crap. I'm going to be 50 in a couple of years. I'm like feeling it, man. <laughs> Once you start falling asleep on the couch every night before you can finish your episode, you're done. <laughs> like, it's exactly right. I know. Sometimes I literally will set my phone up near where I'm doing dishes so I can like catch up on something I fell asleep on. Like it's re- and, like it's ridiculous. I'm like watching TV as I do dishes so I can catch up on it. That's smart. That's multitasking. Good for you. I mean, oh, thank you. I'm going to take that. Yeah. I'm going to turn that one around. I feel like a loser. No, I'm actually a winner. Exactly. <laughs> hey, everyone. I know that having a baby can be a little overwhelming and confusing. If you're looking for a place where you can get all your childbirth prenatal education needs, visit ShellyTaftIBCLC.com. Nicole and I are offering right now an online virtual childbirth educating education class, a prenatal breastfeeding class, and we're soon launching a prenatal newborn care class and a prenatal sleep education course. So you can learn all about infant sleep even before the baby comes. So I'm going to drop that link in the notes and you can check it out and we hope to see you there. All right, let's move on to our question of the week. Yeah. Okay, so this question was submitted by Linda, and she is wondering if you're breastfeeding your baby and the baby doesn't take the second breast, yep. you have to pump the second breast. Ah. What How do you think the baby? Pump? How old is the baby? This is like a general question, too. At the beginning, I would say if it was a newborn and you're establishing milk supply, I would encourage you to pump that second breast. 
not those first few days when the baby is kind of just learning and navigating, but the, well, I shouldn't say the first few days, but the first day or so that's going to happen a lot. The baby's just going to take one side. But after those first, you know, few days, I think it's important to kind of for establishing supply, but a lot of babies do block feed and that's what it's called. If the baby wants to take one side at a time, some babies, no matter what you do, they're not going to want to take two sides. Mm -hmm. And in my experience, the breasts will figure it out. Yes. So how about you? Yes, I agree. And the I would think of the first breast as the main meal. So that's what the baby should get full on. And then you offer the second as dessert. So some babies right. don't always want dessert or sometimes they never want dessert. And some babies always want dessert. Yeah. I always want dessert. Yes. <laughs> in the beginning, when your second milk first comes in and you're full and uncomfortable, sometimes if the baby only takes one breast, pumping the other side only for a short amount of time to relieve that fullness can be helpful. But generally, like you said, your body will figure it out as long as you're alternating the sides that you start on. Right. Your supply will regulate to whatever your baby's taking. Right. So thank goodness we do not have to do that because the less pumping we can do. The better. The better. Right. Unless your goal is different than that. But Right. That was a really good question. That is a good question. Yeah, I'm glad we got that one. And this week we are interviewing... Tierra Caldwell from Crown and Cradled about vaginal birth after cesarean. Awesome. So we'll be right back with that interview. Great. This week, I'm so happy that we are interviewing with Tierra Caldwell. Uh, She's the founder of Crown and Cradled, a licensed nurse, a trained doula, and an international board certified lactation consultant. Welcome, Tierra. Hi, Shelly. Thank you for having me. Sure. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, Well, like you said, I'm a doula, a nurse. I've been a lactation consultant for five years now, and I'm a mom of four kids. I practice out of the D.C. metro area, and I had a VBAC, so I guess that would be something interesting to add as we talk about VBACs today. Awesome. Would you mind sharing more about that? Sure. So I had twins in 2011. And I had to have a C-section because my son was breech and I didn't plan to get pregnant in 2019, but when I did, it was really important for me to be able to have a VBAC. So I really was having some health problems during that pregnancy. And there were times where I really wasn't sure if I would be able to get my VBAC, but I did. And I think it was mainly because I had a good care team, which is something I definitely want to expound on as we talk today. Perfect. And I guess we should clarify what exactly a VBAC is. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So VBAC is a vaginal birth after a C-section. Some people, even myself, can get confused when People start adding the numbers and letters if they've had like multiple VBACs or if they had multiple C-sections, but just something easy for everyone to remember, VBAC is vaginal birth after C-section. And are VBACs something that are kind of easy to have, or do you find both as a mom and a doula, is it something that's challenging for parents to achieve? I actually think that VBACs are really easy to achieve. The problem is really finding care providers who are supportive and educated on the risks and how to really 
look at their client fully, like as a full package and just not look at their C-section as a determining factor for them having to have a repeat C-section. But there's plenty of women who've been able to have VBACs even without trying or planning to have one. Mm -hmm. And why would a healthcare provider kind of hesitate? That's a good question. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess from their perspective, I mean, I used to be a doula too. So you and I know like the real research behind it. Yeah. I think of course, because if you are planning on doing a VBAC, there is risks, right? There's risk to everything that um, we decide to do when it comes to childbirth. So one of those risks could be uterine rupture. Your uterus can just be under a lot of stress from the contractions. During labor, if you're trying to have a VBAC, you also have to take in mind the health history of the patient. A lot of times their weight, They also look at the space between your births. So if you just had a baby, let's say, under two years of age and you're pregnant again, your provider is likely to try to encourage you to have a repeat C-section just because they may not feel that tissue has healed well. Of course, multiple births. (laughs) A lot of providers will, um, if you've had a multiple birth before, and I know a lot of clients who've had multiple births after having a C-section with their first set of multiples, they also will kind of encourage you to just go ahead and have a repeat Mm -hmm. Mm C-section. And for those who may not know, how would you define a uterine rupture? Kind of just what it sounds like. You know, of course, C-sections are major surgeries. So Mm -hmm. They're really making incisions into your abdominal cavity to remove your baby. So a lot of times the contractions, or even if you have to go through an induction of labor to help you go into labor, those medications can make your uterus really overactive. And just like any organ, you know, Mm -hmm. if it's under a lot of stress or pressure, it is at risk for rupturing. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense if you were having pretty uh, pregnancies that were pretty close together and that incision hasn't really had time to heal that your risk of uterine rupture would increase a little bit at least. Absolutely. Yes. And I know in my area, it's almost assumed like most providers just kind of, like you said, assume that the parents are going to want another C-section or push the parents to get another C-section. We don't see VBACs that often in our area. We know all the providers who are willing to try mm-hmm. them with patients. And then there's other providers that are absolutely not. Yeah. So why would a parent want a VBAC? Like, why not just go for another C-section? For a lot of parents that I've talked to, it's because with their first birth, they've suffered some trauma. Usually their C-sections were either emergency C-sections or something where the baby was breached or something happens last minute to kind of change their birth plan or what their expectations were for um, giving birth. So it's a lot of time for parents, just that opportunity to reclaim that, you know, being able to experience a vaginal birth. And even for those who get repeat C-sections after trying to VBAC, I feel like just having the option to labor on their own and actually give it a go again without automatically assuming that they're having a C-section is really empowering and healing for them. Mm -hmm. Because I I think our culture kind of treats cesareans as no big deal. Yeah. When in reality, (laughs) they're major abdominal surgery, like you said. So if the parent can avoid that, if that's what they want to do, they should be given 
the right to do it. Yeah. At least try. Yeah. Does the type of incision that you have from the the C the C section affect your risk factors? It does. Usually, what I've found most doctors or OBs nowadays when they do C sections, they'll make a horizontal incision pretty much around like if you could imagine your bikini line. So right in that area. In the past and also in especially patients from other countries, you may find that their C-section incision is more vertical. So for whatever reason, if it was just the practice of the OB or if there was just some crazy type of emergency where they had to make a vertical incision, which is more prominent in their abdomen area and not the bikini line, mm-hmm. a lot of times providers will not consider you a good candidate for a VBAC. Mm-hmm. Great. And as a doula, when you are working with a family who want their goal is to have a VBAC, how do you kind of guide them through avoiding some of those risk factors? Like what kind of plan do you usually come up with them? Honestly, we usually just do a lot of work on the emotional aspect of it. I'm grateful that most of my doula clients are generally quote, quote, healthy. So it's just a lot of I guess, pre-planning in their pregnancy to find a provider, number one, who's supportive of their decision to try to VBAC, and then really educating them on just some things that they may see. Like, for example, a lot of providers will not want you to go over or overdo, you know what I mean? If you're trying to VBAC or if you do have to get induced, there's certain medications that they won't give you to prevent that uterine rupture. So just a lot of education, I guess. And then when talking to them about how to prepare their bodies, we just really talk about just good body alignment, um, just a little bit of pelvic balancing and things like that to kind of get them prepped. But it's mainly the emotional aspect Mm -hmm. to help them prepare for the I guess, reintroduction to, which is oftentimes a scary place for them, you know, the hospital and really helping them be able to have a fresh set of eyes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, perfect. Do you recommend that that they labor at home as long as possible? Try to avoid inductions if they can? Yes. Yeah. As far as laboring at home, I always give them the option. Again, it depends on why they had a C-section too, but it was one of those things where they just stopped dilating or Mm -hmm. they just, what they call like a failure to progress. Then yeah, we talk a lot about laboring at home and doing Mm -hmm. like what I call labor inducing activities, like being on a ball, walking, things like that. But yeah, we definitely talk about avoiding induction. So around, I would say... 38 weeks, I start getting lots of text messages like, how can I, you know, get the baby moving? How can I go into labor and things like that? None of them want to talk about induction at all. Mm-hmm. Right. Because induction by itself increases your risk of C-section. Yes. Absolutely. Even without the previous C-section factor in there. So I imagine if that's a family's goal, then we want to try to avoid it as long as it's medically safe yes. to avoid. Yeah. You know, as a doula, you must know like all the local providers who are kind of good at allowing parents. I hate to use the word allowing because it's, but you you know what I mean? Right. (laughs) At supporting VBAC, I should say, or encouraging it. 
are there other ways that parents can kind of poke around and find out who is the a good fit for a provider? Ask. I always say interview the providers, especially if you're in like a group practice or something like that. But yeah, so just, you know, interviewing other people who might have had a VBAC or just really being nosy, I say, like doing your really due diligence and finding out what is the philosophy towards birth by your care team. And I also, which a lot of people are like, eh, I also like to recommend them to, you know, consider to have a midwife maybe and mm-hmm. see if just that model of care is something that would be good for them. Granted that they're not, you know, a high risk pregnancy. That's an excellent point too. Yeah. And also like mom's groups, like you said, just asking around. Um, I see a lot of parents asking like parenting groups to get recommendations. Mm-hmm. And of course, hiring a doula. Yeah, that helps. It helps <laughs> a whole lot. I'm not just saying it because I'm a doula, but it helps a whole lot. <laughs> is, is there a, been research out? And not to put you on the spot, but do you know like the statistics of how much it increases your success rate? to have a doula? It's on my website. (laughs) I can't think of it right at the top of my head, Mm -hmm. but there has been studies that the use of a doula does drastically reduce your chances of having a Mm C-section. And I think it's only, or part of the reason is because a lot of times when people do have doulas, they are more likely to labor at home longer. Mm -hmm. And usually by the time they get to the hospital, they're pretty close to being ready to deliver. So I think that might be one of the reasons why we Mm -hmm. kind of reduce that number. Right. Yeah. I've worked with a lot of families in the past where they had a goal of having a VBAC and they were like, well, we don't know if we really need a doula because our provider says that they're supportive of VBACs. But we used to, in, in the doula community, we used to call, some providers would do what we call the bait and switch, yeah. where they say that they're supportive of VBACs and encouraging VBACs, but then as soon as things get rocking and rolling, they kind of change their tune. Do you find that to be true in your area as well? Absolutely. There's just certain providers that you just kind of know, like, mm, they say one thing, but that's not necessarily how they practice. And I always like encourage clients to ask or think about, is your provider actually supportive of VBACs or just tolerant of VBACs? Because it makes a difference. If a provider is supportive, they're going to give you insight. They're going to give you data. They're going to be willing to answer your questions and flexible with your plan versus someone who's just tolerance is kind of like, oh, well, you'll be a good candidate for a child of labor. But like you said, that's oftentimes when the bait and switch kind of comes in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And anytime you hear them say, but. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yes, you can try for a VBAC, but, but where yeah. as a provider that's like truly supportive is more like, yes, let's make a plan. Let's try to do this and, and so forth. Okay. So what are the guidelines for who would be a good candidate for a VBAC? Is there specific guidelines or? I'm sure there are some by what we call ACOG, which is like the governing um, people (laughs) of, you know, OBGYNs. But for me, if I was answering as a doula, Mm -hmm. I would say, of course, maybe letting it be at least 18 months since you've had your last baby. Definitely healthy with not a lot of comorbidity. So like mm-hmm. by all means, if you do have gestational diabetes, you still may be able to VBAC, but it's kind of like the more things that you have on your list, 
against you, it's easier for them to make excuses on why they should do the repeat C-section. So Mm -hmm. not a lot of comorbidities, a good, healthy um, BMI, um, some type of physical activity. So whether that Mm -hmm. be walking, yoga, just long as you're active and really working on your pelvic floor a little bit. And I always say just an open mind, right? So you want to go into it wanting a VBAC and doing everything that you can to prepare for it. But you also have to be okay with your plan changing. So that doesn't mean being okay with having a repeat C-section, but okay with things not going the way that you think that it should go because it's a whole totally different birth experience from your previous one with a C-section. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. You don't want to be kind of locked into too much and mm-hmm. because then it can make it harder when things change right? into a way that you didn't foresee or didn't want. Absolutely. So let's say if you're supporting a family and they are hoping for a VBAC and then their provider comes in and says, okay, we're going to start you on Pitocin. We're going to get your contractions going. What would you usually write, you know, and everything other than maybe the labor has slowed down, but the baby looks good and the parent looks good. What would you recommend a parent do at that point? Really, I would just kind of remind them about what that may mean as far as their labor. A lot of times I focus on doing a lot of prenatal education with my doula clients. So that way, when we're in the big game, I like to call them, we're at the big game, Mm -hmm. they'll kind of already know some terms and be familiar with some of the things that they're being asked to consent to. So I would just remind them what the action of Pitocin is and I do a lot of interpreting. So like the doctor may say one thing to them and they're like, I don't know what that, you know, I don't know exactly what that means. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I have to be frank and like, look, what your doctor's really saying is that he would like to see your labor speed up a little bit. Mm -hmm. So at this point you have to decide if you think it's beneficial for you to have this medication to speed up your labor, or if you would like to rest, do some repositioning to kind of reduce that risk of getting an intervention and maybe, you know, something happening to your baby's heart rate. And then we're kind of back into the same situation that we're trying to avoid. So I don't say it exactly like that, of course, but Mm -hmm. I say it in a way that they understand, you know, that this is not what you want. But again, the option is here for you to choose based off of how Mm -hmm. you want to proceed with your labor. Sure. Because I think the most important thing is giving the parents the opportunity to make an educated decision and not just do, you know, kind of what the doctor's telling them that they have to do in in a non-life emergent situation. Of course, if something's going on with the baby or the parent, that's a different story. Right. If both mom and baby are still looking okay, then I think there's lots of rooms to even have some time to just decide and think about it. Right. Just always tell them like, it's fine to do nothing, you know, for Mm -hmm. a little bit until you have to absolutely make a decision, which rarely happens in labor. You have to make a decision right now, but Mm -hmm. it's good to wait it out and just see. Yeah. And in those cases where you do have to make a decision right now, you know, you're just making that decision. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Right. If you've had multiple C-sections, in what way does that increase the risk or change what your options are? Sure. So, of course, with the stress that your uterus goes through, the more C-sections you have, you develop scar tissue, just like with any wound. If it's 
getting reopened or you keep injuring the same area, you'll get built up scar tissue. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times doctors will examine that. If you do mention that you want to be back, or even if you don't, they'll take a look at your scar tissue or just see how your C-section scar feels, you know, if it's swollen, if they feel anything in that a lot of times can automatically eliminate a lot of women from having the option to be back. Mm -hmm. And so there's, I always tell people there's ways to maybe help with that. So there is some people who do scar massage. There are people who go see pelvic floor therapists to just make sure that their muscles are doing what they need to do, that their organs are working appropriately. Mm -hmm. But especially for the ones who have multiple C-sections, Usually I see if they can go find a midwife. I just find that midwives, I like OBs and midwives, but midwives really like to look at each individual pregnancy. Um, They do consider your health history, but they like to look at each individual pregnancy and where your health status is at that moment Mm -hmm. versus kind of living in the the past, you know, (laughs) of your health history. So I always tell clients who've had multiple C-sections to consult with maybe a midwife first to see what they say. Mm -hmm. And even if you don't, you know, want to be under their care in case you do decide it's best for you to have a repeat C-section, at least you can have that information and be knowledgeable to talk to your OB about your options. Right. I think that's a great idea. Who would they go through for the scar massage? That's one I have not heard about. I must admit. Actually, doulas are trained to do that. Really? That I know. Yeah. And honestly, (laughs) Google is wonderful. (laughs) So (laughs) for me, like I remember when I was pregnant with my last baby, I was looking up what exactly scar massage was and the benefits. Mm -hmm. So thankfully my scar was amazing, right? The Mm -hmm. doctor who did my C-section with the twins did a great job. Mm -hmm. So I really didn't have to massage anything. It was pretty flat and not really noticeable, but I did want to just look it up to see what it does and how it helps. And apparently a lot of people do it across the country and in other countries as well. That's great. Yeah. And I definitely think seeing a pelvic floor therapist, even if you're not aiming for a VBAC, just being pregnant, you should kind of go see one. Yeah. So helpful. Absolutely. And it's kind of hard because if you're, you know, I've heard it said it's the first C-section is not dangerous. The second is not dangerous. But once you start getting into like C-section number three, C-section number four, C-section number five, what a lot of providers don't talk about is how the risk keep increasing with each surgery for the same reason that right. the risk of like uterine eruption increases, right? Because you've got more and more scar tissue just building and building up and weakening the uterine wall. And so it's kind of like once you hit a certain point, which one is riskier for you? Mm-hmm. Another surgery or attempting a VBAC? Absolutely. That's yeah. a really good perspective that I think a lot of people don't think about because again, C-sections are portrayed as like you said, such an easy in and out type of procedure, but people don't think like, okay, if my uterus is going through trauma during a vaginal labor, can you imagine the trauma that is also going through with multiple C-sections as well? Mm-hmm. Yep. And then all the physical stuff and the emotional stuff that comes with that. Right. You know? Yeah. Right it can be a little bit of a difficult recovery. Yes. Depending. Okay. And then do you know, like, 
I know it differs from provider to provider, but do some providers keep track of their rate of VBACs, just like they keep track of like their rate of C-sections? Or is that something that if, if a parent asks a provider, they're going to be like, I don't know. Nine times out of 10, they're going to say they don't know. Yeah. They're going to say they don't know. So that's why I think it's more beneficial to talk to them about their philosophy towards VBACs because mm-hmm. they're going to say they don't know. I guarantee that unless you just have an amazing OB, which I did with my last pregnancy, but even he didn't know his exact rate of VBACs. He could just tell me that he was open to VBACs and how he likes his client, you know, his patients to try to VBAC and things like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's a good point. Is there anything else about VBACs that you think families should know or any other tips and tricks for them? I feel like I always say this, but definitely red raspberry leaf tea. My clients get so tired of me talking about it, but I don't care. Like that is my holy grail for just having a healthy uterus. I know for a fact it made a difference in my last labor and just... Mm -hmm being able to get things going. And once things started, being able to progress and move that baby down. So red raspberry leaf tea is something I always recommend for even people who aren't trying to be back. Even after a C-section, you should drink it because it helps to really tone that uterus and get you where you need to be, especially if you want to be back (laughs) later on. The other thing is to really talk to your partner. If you have a partner about your plan to be back and make sure that you both are on the same page or at least open to going down that path. Cause a lot of times I've personally seen partners, you know, we get into the labor room and they're like, well, this is a lot. This is not going how we thought it would go. You know, if you want mm-hmm. to, we could just go ahead and just do the repeat C-section. The baby will be in your arms, you know, in less than an hour. And they're not saying that to be insensitive, but just trying to make things better for their partner. So mm-hmm. I encourage parents to talk, have deep conversations about what a VBAC is, why is it important to them, and just the benefits of actually birthing vaginally if you can. Mm-hmm. I love that. I used to recommend when I was taking doula clients like you, I used to recommend red raspberry leaf tea to everyone. I mean, the research is there. It really does. I mean, it's there. A lot of things I say, I don't know about, you know, right. So you hear things one cycle and then the next thing, there's a new thing on the market that everyone's doing. But to me, red raspberry leaf tea is kind of tried and true for kind of helping prep and heal your Mm -hmm. uterus. Mm-hmm. And it's good for milk production as well. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And I love your point about having that discussion with partners too, because not only to make sure that they're both on the same page, but, you know, uh, partners can have some emotional hangups too from the previous birth and the previous surgery. And I've worked with uh, families where the partner was terrified of the birthing parent having surgery again, where, yes. and he kind of carried that tension in the room where he was so afraid that she wasn't going to achieve a VBAC and you could just feel it. Mm-hmm. And then, like you said, the opposite sometimes where they're just like, just get the C-section. Yeah. Especially if you weren't in, if you know, if the mom wasn't in labor very long the first time around and he see what contractions look like and what active labor looks like. And right. you're trying to avoid the things that increase the risk of C-sections like epidurals, right? <laughs> <laughs> then it's like, oh, I've never heard her make that sound before. So maybe we should just do the C-section. 
let's call it off. <laughs> so, yeah. It's hard to see the one that you love struggling. It is. It's really hard. And it's really scary, too, for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And again, that's when having a, a doula. Yes. Come in handy. It helps a whole lot. A yeah. whole, I cut yeah. through a lot of tension during births. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for joining us. This, I think this is such an important topic. If parents want to find out more, like, do you have any book recommendations or other than your website? Is there other recommendations for resources where parents could find out about VVACs? Yes, I do. I have two, actually. One is they're called One Strong Mama. Mm-hmm. So you can find them on, I follow them on Instagram, but they have a website as well. And I believe that the main person who runs the company, I think she's a some type of physical therapist, but she specializes in helping teach you about pelvic floor health and movements to really help with labor and pregnancy. And then there's also two ladies that I believe they're called, I think it's the VBAC link. Mm-hmm. If it's wrong, I'll give it to Shelly and she can put it in the show notes. Um, but I believe they're called the VBAC link. Mm-hmm. There are two ladies who are also doulas and they both have had VBACs. And I know one has had a home birth VBAC after a few C-sections. I don't know how many, but mm-hmm. multiple ones. Yes, it's called the VBAC link. So you can go to the VBAClink.com. And not only do they have great information for parents, but also if you're a doula and you would like to learn more information about supporting families who are VBACing, they have a class that you can take as well. That's perfect. Yeah, that's another good point where a lot of parent families will have a home birth to increase their chances of having a VBAC. Do you see that a lot in your area? I do. I think it's just now starting to be sort of a thing in my area. Because a lot of people are still, there's so much fear around VBACs. A lot of people are scared about doing that at home or trying Mm -hmm. to at home. But because, especially the parents who've had multiple C-sections, they can't find sometimes a provider in the hospital who would be supportive of them. So they find a midwife that they trust and they usually go for home birth and a lot of them are successful with their VBACs at home. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't know what it's like in your area, but in my area, we don't have a lot of midwives and hospitals. We have one birthing center. Actually, we just had a freestanding birthing center and to open up in the state, I think last week. But other than that, it was just like a hospital-based birthing center and you could not give birth there. If you had a C-section, you were disqualified from giving birth there. Yeah, they had very strict guidelines on when the midwives had to refer back out and transfer over to the OB care. So we have a really strong home birthing community in Massachusetts. We have a lot of moms who give birth for that reason because there's just no midwives in the hospitals really. Right. Only like one or two hospitals that allow midwives. So, Wow. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. Yeah, I've had two home births myself. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I'm that kind of mom. <laughs> I did not know that. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's amazing. And I will put those two once you said one strong mama was the first mm-hmm. one you listed, right? And then the VBAC link. I'll put those in the show notes, but definitely tell us where can people find you if people want to connect with you and learn more about you? 
Yes. So the best way to find me is actually on Instagram. So you can find me at birth CEO. Mm -hmm. So birth and then CEO. And then you can find me on my website, www.crowningcradle.com. You can always fill out contact form if you have specific questions for me. But honestly, Instagram is the quickest way to reach me if you want to just have a quick question or chat. Yeah, I love your website. I think it's gorgeous. Oh, thank you. I have like website envy every time I look at your website. So much. Oh, my goodness. Do you have a podcast? I I think you do, right? Yeah, I do. Oh, my gosh. So my podcast is Birth-ish. Birth.ish. And we're actually starting back our next season pretty soon. Awesome. Mm -hmm. All right. Great. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This is such an important topic and I'm so happy that you could join us and talk about it. I think every parent should be aware that it's an option at least that's out there and decide on their own if it's the right one for them, but educated decisions is where it's at. That's right. I was so honored when you asked me, I was like, Oh my gosh, really? (laughs) Really? You were the first person I thought of when I was like, I'm going to do an episode of VBAC. I was like, I got to ask her. I was so glad. Like, I love what I do, but I get so tired of talking about just like social media or like talk about lactation all the time. This was fun. I really enjoyed this. I'm so happy. Thank you for joining us this week on the Baby Pro Podcast. Make sure to visit our website, ShellyTapIBCLC.com, where you can check out our online parenting community, The Baby Bistro. You can also follow us on social media at ShellyTapIBCLC on Instagram. If you love the show, please leave a rating on iTunes so that we can continue to bring you amazing episodes. Thanks for listening and see you in two weeks.